Some of us are really glad to be here. We know our past and we know that we actually couldn't be here without Jesus. So thank the Lord for that. I want to start today by just telling you a little bit. You know, one of the privileges of being a youth pastor is to tell you all that's going on with our youth and our young people. And uh, if it sounds like I'm gloating, well, I'm not gloating on me. I'm gloating on the youth. And that's what I want to do. I want to share with you what's been going on with our youth. I shared a little bit about our program, Pretzels for Police, and some of the summer projects that we had. Well, one of the summer projects we had was uh, just after the Orlando massacre at the Pulse nightclub. We began to pray and say, Lord, how could we as the church properly respond? Okay, because there's a lot of churches that are going to improperly respond. The Pulse nightclub was a gay nightclub. Okay, and so we said, Lord, how can we as the church respond the way that Jesus would? And so I, uh, I tasked Miss Becky Sullivan, who is uh, one of the interns and volunteers in our youth group. She is now in college. We tasked her with getting together with the teenagers. And for two months, they got together and they brainstormed different ideas and, and really had an opportunity for God to pour into them what, what we are going to do. So what I have here is a package that will be uh, delivered this week, tomorrow, actually, to the Orlando Police Department. And inside this package are 49 handmade cards to each one of the individual family members, the victim's family members. There were 50 people in total, including the gunmen who were killed. We wanted to minister to the 49 victim's family members. So if you'll pull up that screen, I want to show you what's inside here. We called this Project Orlando. What you see here is only one card, and that's one design. That's a handmade design. There's 49 just like that in here. We thought, how can we bring the love of Jesus to the victims' families? And so we took a picture of our youth group. We all have hearts. We're holding up with our hands. And then there's an inscription written out there, really sharing God's love to these victims' family members. So as always, we wanted to pull on you, the congregation, to pray with us before this gets mailed out tomorrow. So can you extend your faith with me right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are the author and the finisher. You are the giver of life. And so, Father, we pray that as these cards go out, that they would touch the family members who are so wounded, who are so hurting right now, so broken, probably even asking the question, if God is so good, how could this happen? Lord, we pray that you would use this simple token, these cards, to touch their hearts, change their lives, draw them close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, are you ready to get into what the Lord has for us today? So am I. Would you do this with me? Would you grab your Bible? And hold it high. We're going to make a declaration of our faith today. Say this after me. Believe the words coming out of your mouth. Say, Father in heaven. Thank you for this word. It is the absolute truth. And I believe it. It is your personal love letter. To me. And I receive it. It's the answer to my questions. And the answer to the world's issues. Lord, today, my ears are ready to hear your word. My heart is ready to receive your word. And I, by faith, not by works, am ready to be a doer of the word, no matter what comes my way. In Jesus' name, 
Now, Father, as we approach your word today, I pray that it becomes rhema, revelation knowledge to us. Take the words of the pages off the pages, write them on our heart, reveal to us plainly what you want us to discover today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, let me only say what you would have me say and let me only do what you would have me do in Jesus name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, and that might be a good idea, if you're taking notes today, uh, the title of my message is called No Confidence. Isn't that a great title? That's a great way to start our Sunday morning, isn't it? I'm sorry, this is already coming off. It's just <laughs> No Confidence. Isn't a good way to start your Sunday morning? You know, the enemy would like us to have no confidence in approaching God. The enemy would like us to have no confidence in even coming to church on a Sunday morning. He'd like us to have no confidence when we kneel down to pray. He'd like us to have no confidence when we talk to the neighbor and the friends and the family members and the workers, co-workers about Jesus. But there is something that the enemy would want us to have confidence in. And that's this thing right here, your flesh. Today we're going to talk about no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. See, we have the ability by the Spirit of God, as we're going to discover today, through faith in Christ Jesus, to be confident when we approach the throne of God. When we come into church, when we share with family members, co-workers, and friends, we have confidence by faith in Christ Jesus. But one thing the Scripture clearly teaches us, why we as a culture have become so religious, is because we're putting so much stock, so much pressure, so much in our own ability or inability. We're going to walk this thing out today. Are you ready with me? Can you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3? For those of you who are newcomers to the faith, Philippians is in the New Testament. I'm a simple guy. I break things down simply because we're all at different walks. Philippians is in the New Testament. It is written by a guy who was known by the world as Paul, known to the Hebrews at the time as Saul. So today, if you hear me refer to either Saul or Paul, I'm referring to the guy who wrote 90% of the scriptures that we're going to study today. Okay, are you with me? So Philippians chapter 3. And I'd like to take you over to verse one. If you're there, just shout at me and say, I got it. All right. I got to do what I said I was going to do. I want to welcome the WSTL listeners who are listening in right now. Thank you so much. We're glad you're tuned in. So thank you for listening here at Faith Christian Center with Catch the Truth. We're going to get into God's word right now. Philippians chapter three. Again, if you're there, say, I got it. it. Verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the very same things to you is not tedious or overdone, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, if you don't understand what he's talking about, we're going to get into that in just a minute. For we are, everyone say we are, are. the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and here it is, have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Here's why. 
circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I want to walk this out with you for a few moments here and go back to verse two. Beware of dogs. Maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, who are the dogs? Who let the dogs out? And what do they have to do with my faith? Who let the... You guys are too saved and too sanctified, right? Okay, say, so we don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Kurt. Who are these dogs and what have they got to do with my faith? See, Paul... At the time that Paul was preaching, there were these people called Judaizers, and they were Jewish converts to Christianity. But they were still preaching something that you can be saved and you can be saved by faith in Christ Jesus, but that's not enough. You also have to keep the law of Moses because that's God's law. So you got to make sure that you're having faith. Look to Jesus. That's good, but that's the first step. Now for the rest of your human life, make sure you're living according to God's law. How many of you know that can cause a lot of pressure in your life? Paul spends most of the New Testament coming against the message of these Judaizers who are saying, you got to live by the law. You got to live by your works. You got to live by faith. But up until the time of Jesus, this is how the people, the followers of Jesus understood that they were justified in God's sight. But Jesus, we know we have the benefit of the New Testament. He shows up on the scene and the Bible says that he is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul is coming against this message. He calls them dogs. Why does he use the term dogs? I'm going to tell you why. Because in Jewish culture, the Jews of the time of Paul, they would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. So Paul's now spinning the table in a parody format and saying, those are the dogs who are preaching that you still got to follow the law. Now this term, evil workers and mutilation, what is this? What is he talking about? Well, let me just walk this out with you without getting too graphic, but... Back in the time before Jesus, a sign that you were a follower of God was the circumcision. That's the cutting away of the foreskin of the male anatomy. So that was a sign that you were a follower of God. The same thing. After Christ comes, dies, buried, rose from the dead, resurrected on high, people are still preaching. Have faith in Jesus, but make sure that you get circumcised to really prove that you're a Jew. So when Paul jumps down and says, we are the circumcision in verse three, he's saying there's no need to follow that mutilation. There's no need to follow after that. Now, this this is not a a big argument in our culture today. Some people either choose to or choose not to. Those of us who are born again, we understand as we read through the scriptures that it doesn't really matter. But here's the point. Every time. The gospel of Jesus is preached in its truth. It's not enough for us as men. We want to add our religious duties to it. We want to say, okay, have faith in Jesus, but that's where you start. See, maybe we're not preaching to the culture today. You know, you got to be circumcised. You got to make sure you follow the law. But we have subtle ways in our Christian culture of communicating religious, idealistic, legalistic mindsets to new people who are coming in. This is the word that Paul's coming against. 
See, in our culture, our Christian culture today, we might say, praise the Lord that you're saved. You gave your life to Jesus. Well, now you got to live like this. You got to talk like this. You got to act like this. You got to wear this if you really want to be accepted. Now, what I'm saying right now might sound like heresy to some people, but here's the deal. Sure, when you surrender your life to Jesus, a natural outworking of faith in Christ Jesus is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. But the moment that we as the church and leaders and pastors and preachers and teachers begin to step in and oppress God's people and add more to what he has called, we've done it wrong. We're walking around critical. We're walking around judgmental. But here's the reason. You ever ask yourself, why, why am I like this? Why am I judging their Christianity? Why am I judging their walk? Because most of us were taught the very same thing. Most of us were preached religion. You see, this truth of the gospel of Jesus is so simple that we overlook it. And we as humans make it more complicated than it needs to be. And it's amazing as you read through the New Testament, Paul, he writes in the book of Galatians, are you so deceived that having started off receiving by the spirit, you think now you're going to be made perfect by your works of the flesh? You see, this morning is not a word of condemnation, but it's a word of check. Because how many of us are not living in the freedom that God has for us because we're so religious minded? And if I've got religious thinking, guess what I'm going to pass on to other people? Religious thinking. So we put no confidence in this flesh, in our ability to be qualified before God, to be justified before God. Let's walk this out a little further. I'd like to do a case study today. Is there some water? Because I'm shouting already and I'm parched, man. So. I don't know what it's like to give birth, but I know what it's like to give birth to the word, you know, because you got this thing inside of you. You need to get it out. Thanks. I'm glad the women appreciate that because they were like, you don't know what it's like to give birth. I know. I know. I want to I wanna do a case study this morning. I studied criminal justice in college, and we often would do a case study, or we do case studies. We take a look at situations or people, and we would study the case to draw a conclusion. We're going to do a case study this morning. There are two, two, two case studies we're going to look at. The first is the gentleman we're reading, and that's about Paul, also known as Saul. The second is about a guy named Isaiah. We'll do a very quick case study on Isaiah and his experience. Because I believe this. I believe that there are two ways we put confidence in our flesh. The first is very obvious. It's just what we talked about. Thinking that we're good enough to come to God. See, there are two reasons I believe people aren't coming to God today. And there are two reasons I believe that we struggle to come before God, even as Christians. Number one is because we think that we're good enough. How many of you have had conversations with people? They say, well, you know what? I, uh, no, I, I don't need to go to church with you. That's all right. You know, that's good. You've got your religion. But, you know, I'm generally a good person. Haven't broken. I don't break the law. You know, if there was a God and he's going to hold me accountable to his commandments, I probably have only ever lied. Or, you know, I stole that candy when I was a kid. But those things are forgivable. The problem with that is that that is just as deceiving as another type of putting confidence in the flesh. Because we're looking to our own ability saying we're good enough. 
we're good enough. But there's another type. Thank you. There's another type of putting confidence in the flesh that I would, I would be willing to bet that many more of us have felt. And that's the feeling of being disqualified. See, we get it when we look at people who are, oh, you know, you, you can't just expect that God's going to forgive all your sin. You're too good. You're good enough. God is forgiven. But how about those of us who struggle to come to God because we ourselves have already disqualified ourselves. We see our sin as greater than the cross of Jesus. See, people aren't coming to Jesus and Christians wrestle to live in the victory that God has created for them because all we can see is our sin. I'm not good enough, God. I'm not good enough. We don't need to come to church and hear the word because we are already condemned in our heart. We don't need Christians to tell us, you're not, you need to get right with the Lord. We're already condemning ourselves. This is where I found myself at the age of 18. It's hard to sit in the blue chair because all it does is reaffirm that I'm far from God. And everything within me wants to come to God. But I have already disqualified myself. The problem with either thinking you're good enough or thinking you're not good enough is the same problem. You're still looking at you. You're still looking at you and what this thing can do. The truth of the gospel of Jesus is no confidence in the flesh is good enough. Faith in Christ Jesus is the surety for our redemption and our justification by Him. That is it. That is it. It's simple, but it's overlooked. So it's not easy. You're absolutely right. And I want to share a little bit about that. I'm going to give you a personal testimony. For years, uh, not years, but for a while, Pastor John, you know, I've, been, I've been preaching downstairs uh, for about 10 or 12 years. I preached my first message downstairs 10 or 12 years ago this December. And about two or three years ago, Pastor John started chasing me down saying, I want you to bring a word from the pulpit. And as soon as he did that, I will book it the other way. Okay. All right. See you later. You get back to me when God tells you that's what he wants. Okay. Okay. Just run right back down to the youth room. It's easy to hide out in the youth room. And God just began to chase me down and chase me down. And I kept saying, you are asking the wrong guy. I ain't got nothing. I, you, you are totally asking the wrong guy. I'm sitting downstairs in youth ministry thinking, how did this ever happen? How did this does, does everyone know me? Do the leaders really know me and where I came from? But see, what am I doing? I'm putting confidence in this thing, in this flesh. Maybe God has deposited a picture inside of you. It's called a vision, an idea of what he wants you to carry out on this earth. And you keep telling him, "Ah, I'm not good enough. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. Sounds like Gideon to me. But the great thing about it is God will continue to chase you down. And continue to show you that it's got nothing to do with you. And if you're open to my spirit, I will open your mouth and pour right through you. Let's walk out this case study. My friends, my dear friends, they say that I remind them so much of Mr. Rogers. So I want to thank you for that. I believe I'm a little more exciting. but So I'm going to take you to the land of make-believe because there's no way I'm going to get around from this without looking like Mr. Rogers. So I don't have a trolley, ding, ding, but I am going to take you back 
through the land of make-believe. And we're going to take a look at, at this scripture here. Um, I want you to imagine that you're back in the time of Saul, also known as Paul. Jesus has already died. Jesus has already rose from the dead. He's already ascended on high. So we're somewhere uh, between 30 and 60 A.D. Okay? A.D. Not A.C.E. Or whatever it is. A.D. Okay, there's no common error. There's a world-changing event. That's what happened. Before Christ and anti-domini in the year of our Lord. Okay, it's not a common error that just we got smart enough and got out of our junk. Let's get back to this year in the land of make-believe, to the year between 30 and 60 A.D. Let's imagine that Saul is sitting outside of the temple. Saul is a good boy, and he is just so ready to get trained up and, and, follow, and, be, a, and be a follower of God. Because that's what he wants to do. He's zealous for the things of God. So he's sitting outside the temple, probably reading his uh, Jewish Gazette or Jewish Chronicle, you know, just enjoying some breakfast, getting ready to go make tents and start his day. And all of a sudden he sees this advertisement. It says Jewish council member needed, Pharisee needed. And Paul begins to read at all of the credentials and he's starting to get excited. It's like, wait a minute. I have all of these qualifications. So Paul submits his resume. He gets the call back for the interview. He shows up at the interview. And that's where we pick up in verse 5. When they say to him, Saul, what would qualify you to be part of the Jewish council? Verse 5, he says, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, we need to flash forward. Let's come out of the land to make believe. Let me explain a little bit. Excuse me, about what that means. That was a Jewish custom, part of God's law that he gave. So Paul is communicating, from the time of my birth, I was set forward in the things of God. Okay, so Paul is now making his case as to why he should be part of this Jewish council. The next thing he says is, I have come from the stock of Israel. That literally means I can trace my heritage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I technically have a birthright to be here. Okay? The next thing he says is not only do I have a birthright, but I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am the elite tribe in all 12 tribes. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me explain this to you. What Paul is saying is that, again, from birth, my parents made sure that we followed Hebrew customs and spoke Hebrew language. I am set apart. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, let me explain this to you. Concerning the law of God, I am a Pharisee. A Pharisee we have as a negative connotation, but really it was somebody who meticulously or scrupulously studied out the law of God to fulfill it. So that's what he's saying here in verse 6. Concerning zeal, because we want to be zealous for God. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Modern day translation, I was a terrorist. See, uh, Islamic jihad and holy war, they believe that what they're doing is right. Didn't Jesus say that the time will come when he who kills you thinks he offers God a service? Isn't that the words of Jesus? This is Paul the Apostle. This is what he's saying. I was so zealous for the things of God that any contradiction to Judaism, I would sneak out. I would snuff out and destroy. I was a terrorist. Okay, keep reading now. Concerning the righteousness, which is of the law, 
absolutely blameless. Again, going back to, if I was to be justified by my works, I could stand justified before God because I have kept his law. So Paul begins to say, you know, they look at him, they say, well, there's no one else to choose. We got to line out the door, but you are the answer to our questions. We're going to hire you on the spot. Paul gets hired. He gets hired as part of the Jewish council. Again, this is all, we're back with the trolley. We're in the land of make-believe. Okay, I'm kind of putting in the story a little bit. And he gets hired. His job is specifically to go and find these followers of Jesus and promoters of the way and get them thrown into prison. He literally gets some papers to take them and persecute the church to become a terrorist. I want to show you this now. I want you to go over to the book of Acts. Are you all with me so far? One thing I know about giving birth is sometimes it gets a little messy. So I want to make sure that we clean up if it's getting messy out there. <laughs> That's great. I want you to go to Acts chapter 9, please. So we're going to pick up while Paul here is on a journey. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Again, if you're there, shout at me. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he, if he found any who were part of the way. Okay, those are the early church. They're followers of Jesus who said, I am the way, truth, and life. Okay, there it is. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I always find that interesting because he literally acknowledges who he is. Who are you, Lord? <laughs> Hello. The Lord said to him, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And then the many who, men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice and seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Those of you who know the rest of the story of Saul, we know a guy by the name of Ananias comes over, lays his hands on Saul. Saul receives his sight and begins this call of God that is now on his life. For those who may not understand verse 5, Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a pointed prod which was used to move the oxen forward. And so what Jesus might be saying is, you know... After watching Stephen be martyred after preaching that first message, you know, after tracking down all these Christians, you know in your heart what you're doing is wrong. So that's what he's kind of saying here. He's like, I've been poking at you. I've been prodding you for a while. And finally, here comes this encounter with Jesus. So Paul, if we go back to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to kind of wrap up our case study with Paul here. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. 
After Paul has this encounter with Jesus, he then utters these words. Again, he's writing from his memory here about what happened, but verse 7 of chapter 3, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You know, I wanted to start with this example in using Paul as our case study. Because as I said at the beginning, I believe that there are two reasons that keep us from coming to God. I believe that there are two ways that we put confidence in this here flesh. The unbelievers out there, they maybe believe that it's okay. Pastor John has preached himself from the pulpit that when he summed up his existence, he had a good case to explain to God that he was a good person. He was a deacon in his church. He prayed his prayers. He said he even preached a message. He was generally a good person. He says it all the time. Didn't cheat on my wife. Didn't break any great laws. And yet, if he were to stand before God, he would not be justified. Why? Because the confidence in his ability to be qualified before God is what he was able to do. Some of you have found yourself there. Unbelievers unbelievers may still be there. But there is another type, as I mentioned a moment ago, of putting confidence in the flesh. And that's, I think, where many more of us can relate. Where we have disqualified ourselves from seeing ourselves as justified by God. My wife shared this with me years ago. I was wrestling with coming out of the sin that I was struggling with. From the time that I was 13 to 18, I walked away from God. I was raised, born and raised in a Christian household. But by the time I was 13, I was already living in sin, chasing everything that is contrary to God. By the age of 17, I began to cry out, God, I believe that you're real, but you got to show me. By the time I was 18, I had my encounter with the Lord and I've never been the same since. But as I was walking through that, I still had some junk that was on the inside that God needed to cleanse out. And so when I was going through, when I was saying, you know, I'm really struggling on those early days, I'm dating my wife and I'm sitting on the college campus and I'm explaining to her my struggles. And she's saying, Kurt, you know what you're doing? You're saying that your sin is greater than the cross of Jesus. You think you're so disqualified from God Because your sin has separated you. Now, as an unbeliever, sin is a giant wedge between us and God. But when we repent, and when we seek the Lord's forgiveness, and we have faith in God by Christ Jesus, we're saved. It doesn't mean we're still not going to have to work out some of the junk that we submitted to all those years. But the revelation that we need to have is that the cross of Christ paid for that sin. It paid completely. The Bible describes, we're going to read it in a moment. The Bible describes Jesus suffering on the cross as a word called propitiation. They don't even change it in the English translation. They keep it as propitiation because no matter how you try to translate this, you cannot get past the powerful truth that is communicated in this word. It means the complete wrath of God necessary for the payment of sin poured out on Jesus. So maybe you were like me or are like me and you don't understand Paul who thought he was good enough, but you're disqualifying yourself from receiving God's grace because you think your sin is too great for the cross of Jesus. God wants to change our thinking today. Remember, whatever we have 
we're going to give to others. And if I'm religious in my thinking about God, I'm going to give others religious thinking about God. As I, let's go over to Isaiah chapter 6. I want to study this out. We have two case studies this morning. Paul was one. We're going to look at Isaiah 6 now. Isaiah is our second case study. Isaiah 6, please. And when you can get there, you can go to verse 1. Just shout at me. Say, I got it. Isaiah is one of uh, the major prophets that we know in the Old Testament who prophesied specifically about the coming of Jesus. That was the majority of his prophecy. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. That just simply means burning or glowing once. Those were the angels. Each one had six wings. Excuse me. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Man, I would, I'm so excited to see this happen. By the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, watch this now. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All of us, when we encounter God, no matter where we are in our walk, for the first time or for another time, All of us, when we encounter God, are brought to that staggering reality that who I am in this flesh absolutely pales in comparison to who he is. And who I could be in this flesh could never earn by merit anything to stand righteous before him. And Isaiah is looking at this saying, how did I get here? I'm about to be burned up. Because I am standing before the living God. Maybe you're out there today and you, you, this is the first time you're hearing the truth. And you have been running from God. You're feeling something in your heart. You've sat in the church for years. You've come. Maybe you're a backslider. And you feel that sense of, I know I need to surrender to God. But I can't. I'm so not good enough. Take courage today because none of us are. Not one of us is good enough. Even this prophet Isaiah in his own self has nothing good enough to stand before God. But watch this. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Man, if we had time to study this out. This, this is also sort of a, an image of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We're going to read today in Romans 10. Romans 10 says, by confessing with your 
mouth. What did the angel touch with the coal? The mouth. By confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, you shall be saved. Same thing the angel was doing for Isaiah here. The moment you confess and believe in your heart, your sin is purged. Is purged. If that's the case, who could bring a charge against you to God? God has justified. Who then can condemn? We have one adversary. He obviously doesn't know the scripture very well. Because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is so loving that in the parable of the workers. Oh, I love this parable. Jesus tells this story about this, this laborer who, who goes out and finds people to work at the first hour of the day, 6 o'clock. And they agree on a settlement of what the wages are going to be. And so he goes out at every hour, every hour, up until the last hour and finds one. And the, the rest of the, all the people who work that 12-hour shift, they're getting stoked. They're in the back of the line saying, whoa, he got the same wages as us. I can't wait to see what we get. This is going to be great. And they find out they all got the same wages. And they're all upset. How is it that he, who, you know, he came for an hour and worked for an hour. That ain't right on calling the union. Calling the labor board. Ain't right. Man, God is so loving. That person on their deathbed. Last moments of life. God is saying, he's imploring, he's urging, you, if you're willing, are still not qualified. Would you come? Would you come? We don't know what's happened in those last hours of death, but that's how loving God is. No matter how far out you go and no matter how disqualified you think you are, God will still chase you down. Psalm 139 to the gates of hell because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what the world needs. They don't need us pointing the finger at them. Many of them, just like me, knew we were condemned already. Faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. The confidence we have in being qualified has nothing to do with our ability to keep God's law. Or the fact that we break God's law so easily. It has everything to do. With faith in Christ Jesus. I want to point this out with you. Let's go back to the New Testament. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Told you we were going here. Romans chapter 10. We are having ourselves a baby this morning. Don't literally go into labor if you're pregnant out there. We are not qualified. Romans chapter 10. You know, life is funny. If you just look for the opportunities, life is funny. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Oh, man. This is so powerful. Watch this now. For Christ. Are you there, Romans 10? Because I don't want to read it unless you're there. Romans 10, verse 4. Okay, they're smart. They put it on the screen. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Hello, if you have been trying to justify yourself, qualify yourself before God by your ability to keep his commandments and not fall into sin, Christ has already done it for you. He has already fulfilled the law in its entirety for you. And if you don't believe it, just turn to Romans 8 and Paul hits it again. He has satisfied the wrath of God and fulfilled the law. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend from the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. How is your righteousness given? By believing in your heart. Did you realize that? It doesn't say by your works. Righteousness is given by believing in your heart. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You are saved by the confession of your mouth, by faith in Christ Jesus. You are righteous. You have a right standing before God simply by believing in your heart. You say, man, Pastor Kurt, that's too easy. That's just how good God is. That's just how good he is. Stop adding things to his commitment to you. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. No, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence, your ability or your inability. Put no confidence in your flesh. Not of works, lest any should boast. Here it is. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Why does this matter? Well, first of all, our confidence in our own flesh will keep us from truly experiencing God. If we feel that we're good enough, we're good enough. We'll never surrender and know his grace. And if we feel that we have to work for it, we'll always be working. We'll always be working for it. And the problem that I see that I think is pointed out to us in the scripture, if we're putting confidence in our flesh, we're totally missing what God has given to us. See, I believe in my heart that God has deposited a picture, I say, inside of each and every one of us. 
Something He has called us. We're all normal people. We're all normal people. We've been talking about this with the Christmas play coming up. We're all normal people. But we all have a divine purpose from heaven. Did you know that? You have a divine purpose from heaven. And God has put inside of you a picture. And He doesn't want you to try to work towards the picture. He wants you to surrender to Him so that He can fulfill the picture inside of you. I was a kid sitting in these very chairs and I would see myself up here on the stage singing praise and worship songs. And that's when I started to run. There, there's no way that that's possible for this guy right here. And then I was preparing in youth group and I would see myself preaching here in this pulpit and I would say, there's no way that that's possible. I tell the young people all the time, by 22, all the dreams I had were fulfilled. Say one of two things, Pastor Kurt. Either you had some really short-sighted dreams... I was 22. Really short-sighted dreams. Or they, I don't know what the other thing was, but, but here's the deal. Now I have bigger dreams. You see, God is taking us from glory to glory. You've got that picture. You know it. Some of you are running from it. But if you, yes, if you go to it, if you surrender to God and allow Him to develop, I want to tell you something. If there's anyone who should be disqualified to stand up here and preach, it's me. By my own strength, there's no right. First of all, there's no ability. I was that kid who couldn't stand up in front of the class and talk and do anything. I couldn't. Second of all, there's no worth in this flesh right here that has earned any right to stand up here. But thanks be to God. That is the grace of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And you got it too. You got it too. You got it too. 